The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of April 26, 2021. On Sox Machine Live, which was our previous episode, we talked about how the White Sox had to take advantage of this nine-game homestand, especially facing two teams that are not great in the Texas Rangers and the Detroit Tigers. Well, this homestand is off to a great start as the Chicago White Sox swept the Texas Rangers and now have won four games in a row. With a 12-9 record, they are one and a half games back of the Kansas City Royals, who continue to play great baseball to start 2021. But the White Sox are four and a half games ahead of the Minnesota Twins, who start their series against Cleveland this week. And with the Detroit Tigers coming into town, another opportunity for the White Sox to pad that lead against their chief rival. On this episode, we'll recap what went well for the White Sox against the Rangers, including Michael Kopech's terrific start, 
and preview the upcoming series against Detroit and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. You mentioned on Sox Machine Live that the White Sox could have a five-game winning streak in them. And now they're just another win away from making that happen. Yeah, it felt like a pretty good week for me uh, with the live show between that and with Yohan Makata being my pick to click. Uh, I wish more weeks are like that for me, but it, we, we saw it on paper that, uh, you know, White Sox coming home, playing sub 500 teams, uh, lined up pretty well pitching wise with the, with the, uh, with the, you know, postponements of the week before and off days, they had their you know pitching staff at full strength. So everything was lined up for them to have a series like this. And they had a series like this and that's great. Yeah. And let's talk about the offense. Cause for me, that's a, that's a big takeaway and why the White Sox swept the Texas Rangers. Saturday was a pitcher's duel. We talked about this on Sox Machine Live. I don't know why the White Sox can't hit Kyle Gibson. I, 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 I just don't know why they can't, but they can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were still able to find a way to win that game 2-1. to one. We'll talk about Nick Magical in a moment. But winning game one, 9-7, to seven, uh, a that was definitely a barn burner between the two teams. Both teams had difficulties as far as pitching, especially out of the bullpens. And then, uh, then on Sunday they came out early uh, and scored eight runs in the first three innings. Uh, a little dicey as far as with uh, Jonathan Stever uh, can't get anyone out, and Texas were was able to score a few runs. Off him and Gary Crochet as they were able to put up four. But the White Sox never really seemed to be endangered. And you mentioned Yohan Mikata. And it is nice, Jim, to see that Yohan Mikata is getting into the mix offensively. Uh, When we talk about this great past week for the White Sox, uh, in his last four games, Yohan Mikata is 7 for 16. Now, he only has two extra base hits, a double and a home run. Um, but he's walked three times. So in his last 20 plate appearances, Yohan Makata uh, has got on base 10 times. And that is the type of offensive performance this White Sox ball club needs, Jim, if they're going to have to have someone other than the rookie sensation, Yermin Mercedes, try to fill the void of Eloy Jimenez's injury. Yeah, and I like that it kind of uh, coincided a little bit with uh, Tony Larusa changing up the lineup a little bit, putting him in front of Abreu third, Abreu fourth, and you know during the Rick Renteria era, Abreu mainly batted third just because he liked the idea of Abreu always coming to the plate in the first inning, and you know there are reasons for that and reasons against it, and you know the the sabermetric lineup conventional wisdom would say that you either bet your best hitter second or fourth because of opportunities with runners on base, but you know, when it comes to the top half of the order, it really doesn't matter. You know, we're talking about like fractions of a run. So comfort is over everything. But in this case, you know, he made an early switch, uh, treated the lineup as a little bit uh, pliable up top with, uh, you know, having a Brayu move to the second inning perhaps. And it seems to have worked out well for both of them. And I, I don't necessarily think that batting third is what changed things. I think it's just more of a matter of timing and getting into the flow, but just having the flexibility to say like, Oh, let's see how the lineup looks this way and not have uh, anybody freak out or, um, you know, have players, you know, responding poorly and in terms of their play and having those questions raised. Uh, it's always nice when a manager can take chances, play some hunches and, uh, the players respond well enough to where, you know, it rewards the manager for doing that. And, and, 
and uh, you know, perhaps doing some more stuff like that with lineup flexibility that uh, can ultimately pay off. Yeah, and it was just not Yohan Mikata as far as his past week. I mean, Tim Anderson is 8 for 22 his past five games. Luis Robert is 7 for 19 in his past five games. You remember Mercedes continues to hit. He's 7 for 17 in the past five games. Andrew Vaughn has been hitting the ball better. Uh, he's been he's four for ten in the last five games. Uh, and Zach Collins on Sunday found a way to get three infield hits. I thought I would never utter those words before. Uh, the speedster Zach Collins getting those infield hits. But again, you know, Yohan Mikata had such a slow start. And even when you dive deep into the numbers, and I mentioned this on Sox Machine Live, pay attention to how Mikata makes contact against breaking pitches and off-speed pitches. Sure enough, his one home run over the series was off a slider. That's great to see. He still hasn't gotten a base hit off a changeup, but again, we're early, and uh, maybe using my voodoo magic gym by calling that out, Yoan Mikata, mm-hmm. this upcoming series against Detroit, is going to get a base hit off a changeup, and that'd be good to see. Uh but again, we were hoping that the 2019 version of Yohan Mikata would return for the White Sox, especially in light of Aloy Jimenez's injury, at least for this week and in this series against the Texas Rangers. Hopefully this is a springboard for him uh, to a fantastic month or even a fantastic season if you go past that. And uh, fingers crossed that does happen. But You know, one of the guys that I didn't mention as far as listing off the players that has had a great week uh, was Nick Magical. And Nick Magical in this past week is 6 for 19. And he has driven in five RBIs this past weekend. And uh, he came up huge on Saturday having the walk-off hit. Joey Gallo played shallow right field. I don't blame Joey Gallo for setting up there. And uh, Nick Magical hit it over his head, and that allowed Luis Robert to score from second base. And on Sunday, Nick Magical was a home run shy of hitting the cycle, as he also hit a triple uh, that split the gap in left center, and he was able to get to third base standing up uh, and starting to display some of his speed. He also had a good base running play. It was not the best bunt from Adam Eaton, who laid down a sacrifice bunt when the White Sox are up 7-1. A curious decision on Eaton's part. Uh, But the pitcher never looked at Magical after Magical took a few steps back to third base. Once the pitcher threw it to first, Magical scooted home. That was a good base running play by Nick Magical. And Jim, as as far as this weekend, again, it's against the Texas Rangers, who are not a great baseball club. But Nick Magical still, I think, doesn't even have 60 games under his belt. Uh, He's still learning. But at least for this weekend, this is the type of player that I think a lot of people were excited about when the White Sox took him early in the first round a few years ago. Yeah, his OPS is now up to 776. And I think when we're talking about Madrigal, if he's closer to 800 than 700, I think he's doing pretty well because you figure he's always going to hit like uh, 300 or above, and which is a weird thing to say, like he's always going to hit. But when you look at the hit tool and then just look at how he's able to punch the ball and, and manipulate the bat, um, it seems like 300's you know, more or less a floor for him, uh, which is kind of cool to say and, and a little bit old fashioned. But I think the other stuff is the walks and, uh, and maybe hit by pitches. And then, you know, the occasional extra base hit and seeing those all come into the four uh, this weekend was really yeah, nice to see. And, and 
I thought it was cool too. Like, uh, uh, his post-game uh, interview after he had the walk-off uh, double over Gallo's head. Um, you know, Benetti was talking to him, and, and they asked him what he was looking for. And it was, uh, I think Texas had a few curious decisions the weekend. Like, I think they should burn their spray charts because they, especially in the <laughs> outfield, like that really, uh, uh, that really didn't work out for them. They gave a lot of bases just with uh, positioning. But with the, uh, with the double, you know, he mentioned that uh, he got to face a reliever for a second time, which, uh, um, you know, uh, hitters seldom get to do in, in games that are anything resembling a close game. And he said that, you know, he had a funky leg kick that he couldn't quite, or the, the pitcher had a, a funky uh, windup that he couldn't quite time his leg kick for the first time, had trouble doing that. But the second time seeing him, he seemed like he had a better beat on just when to get his foot down. And then he was able to put a charge in the ball. And, you know, I wonder if that's something just with, you know, his lack of power and lack of at least ability to put the ball at the park is that just if teams are going to be underestimating him a little bit, uh, letting him, you know, letting their guard down a little bit, figuring like, well, he can only burn us for a single. Or if we play shallow uh, and we have Gallo in right, he's going to be able to uh, get a throw home and, and keep the run from scoring. Uh, if, if he's able to get people to underestimate him just a little bit, I think that's maybe where that edge that he played with with Oregon State and you know, coming up the ladder where he was able to just burn people by uh, uh, out-efforting them, you know, um, just having too great of a motor. We've seen that burn him uh, early on with uh, dumb base running plays and just acting too fast in the field. But as his game uh, shapes up a little bit, gets him more under control, I wonder if he's going to be able to harness that a little bit for the better and, and be able to turn that against teams uh, like he did in college. You know, old Nick Madrigal does have five extra base hits so far yeah. on the season. Uh, Jose Abreu only has seven extra base hits to compare. Five of them are home runs for Jose Abreu, so his extra base hits are more valuable. But, you know, Nick Madrigal now on this season is hitting 308 with a 361 on base percentage, and he's slugging 415. I, I can't believe it's above 400, uh, and he's got four walks to just two strikeouts. And defensively this weekend, I thought he played a lot better. Uh, mm-hmm. Really good positioning, staying balanced, uh, taking some really hard grounders and able to you know keep his ground and able to to field those plays. And the double play attempts were getting a lot better as far as his transition. I thought Nick Magical had a really good weekend for the White Sox. And Jonathan Latsky, one of our Patreon supporters, sent us one of sent us this question, Jim. And Jonathan's asking, having Nick Magical on deck when Lurie Garcia ends innings is tough to watch. Do you envision Magical getting moved out of the nine hole or is rolling over to Tim Anderson that big of a deal? I think LaRusa is a big advocate of rolling over the lineup. That's why he batted the pitcher eighth, uh, oftentimes or at least more than anybody else when he was uh, managing in the National League just because of that, um, you know, that ability to have that Decent on base guy at the end in front of the best hitters in the lineup who are batting, you know, theoretically one through three or one through four. So that's, I think, why Madrigal's batting ninth, even with Garcia's batting eighth. However, you know, when you look at, um, like, say, the the Friday game against uh, Dane Dunning, and you had the bottom of the order, which was Yermin Mercedes, Andrew Vaughn, and Nick Madrigal, and they went uh, combined eight for 12. I think as long as, you know, Garcia starts... Uh, you know, maybe dry up a little bit in left field. And Vaughn, I, I'm kind of disappointed he didn't play on uh, on Sunday. I, I 
don't understand why Garcia is playing out there really right now. But uh, when you have like, you know, Vaughn who is swinging the bat better uh, and against better competition, you know, batting eighth, I think, you know, magical batting ninth is less noticeable and, and, and more or less fine. And then when you have those three going uh, back to back to back in front of Tim Anderson, who also had two hits, uh, that's when I think you see those runs pile up and, and the uh, just the the idea of not having like a quiet inning and, and for, uh, for opponents, for starters, especially like fringy starters like Dunning or, or Kohei Arahara, who, who started Sunday, just, you know, no relief, no ability to get footing, um, just threats up and down the lineup, whether it's on base or, you know, ability to put the ball over the uh, fence. I think that's uh, something in this lineup that really hasn't been seen. So I think as long as, you know, you don't have like, say, three black holes in front of magical like i think you know in previous years you'd have like after the top four hitters you just doesn't matter who's you know what order you put them in because they're all terrible mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as you have just one uh one just kind of uh blank space in the lineup i think it's okay batting magical ninth i think now if you if say like you know the catcher spot is still not getting production and then say if mercedes cools off or somebody gets hurt and all of a sudden now you're down two or three hitters and i think it's there's less of a payoff in having Madrigal not joining the party uh, behind the heart of the order or maybe at the top of the order and, and shoving other guys down. I think he will get moved to the top of the order if Larusa figures that Tim Anderson needs a day off mm-hmm. or if, let's say, you know, knock on wood, this doesn't happen because it appears that 2016 Adam Eden has returned to the White Sox. But if Adam Eden has to have a day off, I can see Madrigal get bumped up uh, to the top of the lineup. Maybe Luis Robert takes uh, Ian's spot in that type of hypothetical situation and batting second. But I, I think we'll see Nick Magical at times bat in the top three again uh, during the season. But I'm okay with him batting ninth because this does make the White Sox lineup unique. It is clear it is frustrating opposing teams. And at this moment, why not? Because if everyone like this weekend is hitting and you have your middle of the order being Makata, Abreu, Robert, and Mercedes, and now you're bumping Yasmani Grandal, who's really struggling to start the season offensively, batting seventh. And then if Andrew Vaughn is batting eighth and he got magical ninth, that yeah, suddenly this lineup has gotten a lot longer for the White Sox. And... I, I guess I'm agreeing with LaRusse's thinking here. I Analytically, is there a big difference between who hits eighth and who hits ninth? Uh, not really, but it is like a small theoretical edge, and so that's why LaRusse pursued it. Got it. Got it. No, I, I can understand that. I can understand that. So, Jonathan, I hope that answers your question. So I think at this moment we're cool with uh, Magical batting ninth. I know it's frustrating, uh, when Lurie Garcia makes the final out, especially if there's guys on base, but I think that's more of an issue with Lurie Garcia uh, than not necessarily getting Nick Magical in those spots. Because I, as we saw on this weekend, and the fact that he drove in five RBIs, Magical is getting opportunities with guys on base, and he is uh, taking advantage of it, which is a, a nice surprise to see. But that's the White Sox offense. Let's talk about White Sox pitching here, and uh, we'll start with two good starts that the White Sox got on Saturday and on Sunday. Saturday, again, frustrating as it may be with Kyle Gibson shutting down the White Sox offense, but Dallas Keuchel also held his own gym, 
pitching six scoreless innings for the White Sox, allowing seven hits and striking out two. The thing about Keuchel is that in his last two starts, which has spanned 11 innings pitched, he's only struck out three batters. Are you concerned about the low amount of strikeouts coming from Keuchel? Uh, a little bit, but I think watching Keuchel and, and watching, you know, just looking at his splits early on in the season, I'm more concerned about Keuchel like having uh, in-game endurance like towards the uh, you know middle innings, the fourth, fifth, sixth, after 50 pitches or so, um, you know, having enough power on his cutter, having enough drop on his sinker, you know, just being able to get either, yeah, that, since he's not getting strikeouts, he's not getting pitches by people, but at least, you know, getting him in a position where he's not on the barrel. I think that's what I'm more or less concerned with, how he gets there, how he gets those outs quickly and, and doesn't start, you know, racking up a pitch count in the 70s through, uh, you know, three or four innings. Um, that's, I think, the the, the primary concern. I, I He's going to be somebody like maybe like Mark Burley a little bit, um, you know, when Burley was in his 30s to where he had some really ghastly strikeout totals. And, and you see the, uh, you know, one of the years of strikeout total, I had a, uh, two digits started with a nine and that wasn't good. So you, you see that and you think a pitcher is going to fall off a cliff, but you know, Keuchel, he, you know, gets grounders, he gets a weakish contact. He, um, he defends his position while he stops the running game. He has all those things that Burley had working for him to where strikeouts were less important for him than they are for other pitchers. I think the, the thing with Keuchel is just quality of contact and making sure that he's pitching into good positioning. And I think the White Sox positioning is improving a little bit. Uh, I, I've, I think I've seen, and this is more, I haven't looked at the numbers, but just based on feeling of uh, when the camera cuts from the center field cam to behind home plate and you're following the action, just like, oh, a guy's there. Or at least, you know, uh, the, that hole isn't completely vacated the way it was like in the first week or so. So I think as long as he's pitching, you know, he's getting contact, but contact's going into the shifts then I think that's more or less the way he's going to succeed and strike out some more or less a bonus. I think from here, uh, it's more about getting Lance Lynn off the injured list and, and thinking of Lynn more as the second starter in a playoff series and having Keuchel be the third. And let's talk about Michael Kopech. In a surprise, I was not expecting him to throw 80-plus pitches in this spot start. I'll be honest, Jim, I was expecting more of a leash that he had against the Boston Red Sox, in which he got to the fourth inning, and then the White Sox would turn into the bullpen. But I I am glad that the White Sox extended Michael Kopech, but because he was magnificent on Sunday. Five innings pitched for Michael Kopech on 87 pitches, four hits allowed, one earned run, which was a home run by David Dahl, no walks, 10 strikeouts. And I, I've been on record saying this multiple times, and I'm going to go on record stating this again. If the White Sox feel comfortable that Michael Kopech can handle 80-plus pitches every five days, I think he's got to be in the starting rotation, Jim. Yeah, uh, it's getting harder to uh, uh, think otherwise when you see the way he uh pitched and one thing that's fascinating about watching Kopech pitch at the same time while watching Dylan Cease pitch is you know when you, when you hear about fastball ride fastball spin fastball movement fastball cut you know and, and when pitchers are going well pitchers are not going well like intended and unintended uh, movement of pitches uh, it's really clear watching Cease and Kopech like basically go on, on uh, you know in the same series and watching Cease throwing 98 and getting 
either missing spots or getting loud contact or foul balls that are productive, you know, not just, you know, swinging under it and, and barely tipping it, but just, you know, louder foul balls, you know, fighting it off, um, making Cease not confident in his fastball, whereas Kopech is just, uh, you know, maybe he's throwing like 97, sometimes 95, but just the ride that he has on it, the, uh, the rise and, and also like the, the run that he has on it going uh, arm side. Uh, that Cease doesn't have and that Cease wants. It's, uh, you know, you're seeing hitters swing underneath it, uh, foul tips, uh, barely getting a piece of it, you know, looking way behind. That's the kind of uh, fascinating, I think, uh, just an example that very clearly illustrates what people are talking about as they, they learn the finer points of fastball movement and fastball spin and spin efficiency and all that. It's like, it's, it's a very convenient example. It's like rolling out right in front of you and you can really see what they're talking about. And, I think with Kopech, it just kind of comes down to, um, and, and I guess we had a, yeah, can we just go into the the question we got in the P.O. Sox mailbag about this, asking if we were finally done with Dylan Cease because of the way Kopech pitched. And I think both are going to be needed. I think uh, Kopech's going to mm-hmm. be, you know, just because he hasn't pitched over, uh, you know, two seasons, and now he's getting back into it, there's going to be a need to have safeguards on him just to not extend him. Like the, the whole idea with having, you know, Carlos Rodon signed and then having, you know, we, we wanted somebody else signed is just to not need Michael Kopech the way that team, we, we thought the team was foolish for needing Andrew Vaughn. Like they should be in glass cases, you know, break in case, you know, of emergency or in case they look really awesome in the case of Kopech. I don't think Cease is an emergency yet because uh, Rodon is now the fourth starter, Cease is the fifth starter. Fifth starters technically are bad, or <laughs> they're not good. They're fungible. You can swap them in and out. You can wait for them to develop, see if they do. Use exercise and patience. That's more or less fine. So I think you need to keep Cease engaged, keep them you know, in there. And I, and I also think with, with uh, Lynn still not knowing exactly what you're going to get from him, with Giolito having the finger cut and coming off a dud start uh, the time before, I'd like to see some certainty there. So I don't think we're done with Cease yet in terms of a clean transition. However, I think like in a couple weeks, should Giolito bounce back, should Lynn be off the injured list, should Cease stumble again, then I think you're in a position where, well, you have a minor league season, you know what, C- you know, you have the same pitching trackers, trackman and so forth in Charlotte. If you're looking just to see how his pitches move, he can work on that, not in the majors. So I think that's a, that's an avenue available to him if necessary. And Kopech, if he's still looking good, if he's not hitting any kind of uh, in-season fatigue walls, um, you know, he could take over there. And I think that's that might be a move they have in store. And I think Tony La Russa is trying to, you know, not use him for that because, you know, partially because Kopech's so, been so good in the bullpen that you don't necessarily want to take that for granted. Mm-hmm. But for, uh, yeah, I think he's left enough of a door open to make that change. Scott Merkin was tweeting out quotes from Tony La Russa as Merkin was asking Larusa regarding as far as looking ahead and how he is planning to use players like Michael Kopech. And Larusa commented that he's just trying to live in the now. And if you are living in the now, game by game, I don't know how you don't have Michael Kopech start those games instead of Dylan Cease. Because Cease, Jim, is failing to do what you what you need from your back end of the starting rotation is not add more stress to the bullpen. And he's adding quite a bit of stress to the bullpen at this moment. He's made four starts. He's only pitched 17 in a third innings. And mm-hmm. he hasn't gotten through the fifth inning at all. Michael Kopech, 
against Texas on Sunday, two days after Dylan Cease couldn't get through the fourth inning against the same roster, uh, was able to get through the fifth inning on 87 pitches. I mean, if he had a 100-pitch <laughs> limit, he may he would have pitched into the sixth inning for the White Sox. And who knows, maybe he gets through the sixth <laughs> inning where Cease, yeah. where Cease can't. And Cease is the, the quote-unquote healthy pitcher compared to Kopech. And, and I know you have a lot of White Sox fans arguing with each other on Twitter because we're hearing the Steven Strasburg comparisons and Steve Stone mentioned this on the broadcast that the White Sox have a plan for Kopech. They're not going to overuse him this year because they don't want to ruin the future of Kopech. But the way I'm looking at it is that if he is feeling strong enough, if Ethan Katz working with Kopech and with the trainers are noticing physically he is holding up fine throwing 80 pitches, then I think Michael Kopech should be starting every fifth day and let him go 80 pitches and see how far he takes you. Because on 87 pitches, Jim, he struck out 10 batters, okay? <laughs> and if he's turning the starting rotation over and handing the ball to Lucas Giolito and Carlos Rodon, who's pitching out of his mind, and Lance Lynn comes back, holy cow, you're going to have four-game winning streaks lined up later in this season if the starting pitching can continue to pitch the way that we think that they can. And you can go back to having Kopech throw in the bullpen later in the season, but as if we are following Tony Russa's advice of living in the now, I do not know how anyone can say Dylan C should be starting every fifth day over Michael Kopech. Well, I, I think, you know, well, one thing is I was laughing because you, you mentioned that, you know, C's, you couldn't get to the fifth inning and any of his previous starts didn't get to the fourth inning in his last one. And then Kopech comes off the, the couch and throws five innings and strikes out 10 with a fastball slider. Like, Oh, is this supposed to be hard? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, just the nerve of the guy. But, uh, you know, my interpretation of LaRusso's quote was different. He said like my interpretation of him saying, you know, that paying attention to now is that like, he's not thinking about what Kopech's going to be doing in August. He's just kind of adhering to the plan as he sees fit right now. Um, so I think that was my interpretation of it is that he's not worrying about like what Kopech's going to be like in a month or two months and, and trying to figure out if he's going to be a starter then. He's just more or less taking it start by start the way we've kind of seen with Bears quarterbacks, not really tipping hands mm. or uh, you know, saying something where he uh, um, you know, doesn't dig too, uh, too deep a hole or, or take somebody's back uh, too strong into where it seems like he's completely backtracking if he changes uh, fifth starters by like next week or so. I think like he's he's I think he's content to say like if he if the minor league season starts uh, Charlotte's underway and Dylan Cease is on that roster. I don't think Larusa has said anything yet that really uh, you know gets him in trouble or at least you know comes off as hypocrisy or misleading players or misleading the media. I think he's more or less fine. Um, yeah, it, it's. I think with Kopech, I think LaRusse has done a good job managing him so far. Um, you know, not basically letting Kopech force the issue or just, you know, like, okay, he did two innings. How about three? Mm -hmm. He did three innings. How about four? Oh, the fourth inning was eight pitches. Try a fifth. <laughs> I think he's been very good at just uh, letting, you know, basically managing Kopech from behind and just seeing where he leads him before, uh, you know, maybe you know, LaRusse says, okay, we need to stop here. So I think he's more or less content to let that play out. And right now he's kind of reached a crossroads a little bit with C struggling. But I think as long as you have the two question mark with Giolito and Lynn, I think it's worth like not answering that question right now. So I think that's why um, you know, LaRusso is maybe 
being a little bit cagey or just a little bit, uh, you know, open-ended right now, because I think there are ways that Kopech could start without Cease being out should guys need a little bit more time to get back in the rotation. I do disagree with you about the idea of sending Cease to Charlotte. I don't see that happening, Jim. I would see a change in roles. Kopech, you are starting. Cease, you're going to have to learn how to throw out of the bullpen. Because if you're going to pitch for us in the postseason, it's probably out of the bullpen. And let's see if we can get two clean innings from you. That that I see that. I see that happening. Yeah. It would just depend on whether they're looking for somebody to provide the quality of innings that Kopech provided. I don't like Cease for that. I don't like Cease being a fireman. Like you have to be like the long relief guy. Yeah, you make a good point. Damn it. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can see being like if they they feel like they need like a um, just a long relief guy. Like I could see him not moving down to Charlotte immediately, but more along lines of like maybe they test him in a higher leverage or medium leverage situation and doesn't work out. You know, maybe they give it a shot for a couple times. But if that doesn't work out, I can see him going down to Charlotte because like our our discussions with uh, Reynaldo Lopez last year. Just like, well, you know, he's throwing 93. He's throwing 91. Like, he's not hitting 96, 98 like he was when he's working. So it's like, he can go down to Schaumburg. If the radar gun readings aren't telling you what you need to know, you're learning something. Like, you're, it's not like he's uh, he's going to beat up, uh, uh, he's going to post, like, excellent lines against, like, you know, inferior competition, and you're going to be fooled by it. If he's throwing 91 to 93 at Charlotte, you probably know it's not going to work in a sustainable way in Chicago. So I think the same thing with Cease. Well, Biz, you can see the spin, you can see the movement, you can see just exactly what he's trying to do, and the results are more or less secondary. I feel like this is a good issue, though. This is a good debate to have mm-hmm. because yeah, Kopech is currently tied with Lance Lynn for the team lead in strikeouts of 27. Yeah, no, it's it's great, <laughs> and uh, you know, and and I think it's been responsibly handled. Yes. Like it's been. It's been Kopech being the guy to elevate his game to, you know, knock on the door. Yeah. It's not, oh, crap, we need him. I guess there could be a debate on who should have the final say, the White Sox front office or Tony La Russa. But at this moment, I think it should be up to La Russa and Ethan Katz to tell Rick Hahn on how comfortable they feel working with Michael Kopech every day because – Physically, I don't think there's any issue with Michael Kopech. We know he's a gym rat, Jim. He probably takes care of his body better than anyone else on this roster. It's not the physical part that I was concerned about with Michael Kopech. It was the mental aspect coming off from opting out in 2020, the you know outside the game issues that hit up as far as TMZ or other tabloids. And he has ignored all of that. And he's been spectacular for the White Sox. And I'll say this again. The White Sox, right now, Michael Kopech, if he started every fifth game for the White Sox, would be in in line to start the Saturday, May 1st game against Cleveland. And I say, let him start that game. And see, give him 80 pitches and see how far he takes you. Because if he's going to come out and he's going to continue throwing like he did, like he has all season for the White Sox. Uh, Then that's another key divisional game that you pick up. Thanks to Kopech getting you into the fourth or fifth inning. And I think that alleviates far more stress 
because Dylan Cease is not getting through the fifth inning. And when Dylan Cease is leaving games, he's got runners on base that the the bullpen's got to navigate through. He's not helping the bullpen at all. So I think Kopech gives the White Sox the best chance to win. And I think he gives Mm -hmm. the White Sox the best chance to alleviate pressure on the bullpen every fifth game, especially if Giolito gets back on track. Rodon continues to pitch that he has. And Lance Lynn comes off the injured list. And Dallas Keuchel is doing his best Mark Burley impression. Yeah, I I see uh, really no argument with that. And, you know, should they need to give a break during the season, there are ways to do it. Exactly. And that's a good point, too. So that's why you could keep Dylan Cease around. Maybe you go to a quasi six-man rotation in which Kopech takes a few days off or Kopech comes out of the bullpen and he throws a couple innings over a week stretch uh, to limit the amount of innings that he throws. But again, if Kopech feels strong and Ethan Katz is fine with it and LaRusse is fine with it, I say let Kopech start. If they have confidence, he could throw 80-plus pitches. Yeah, and I'll be writing about this too at Sox Machine, just trying to map out where he is and where he might go and what innings might look like. Oh, that like. would be great. That would be a really handy guide. Are you going to have that on Tuesday or Monday? Uh, During the day Monday. Got a lot of time. No game, so. Excellent. So check that out <laughs> on a Monday afternoon, White yeah, Sox fans. map it out. So on SoxMachine.com, check out Jim's post because I think that's going to be a handy guide because it's kind of... I get as far as the future, and I'm sure there are White Sox fans yelling at us right now listening to this uh, debate, saying that you got to be protective of his arm. Remember Steven Strasburg. But pitchers are weird, man. They're not all alike. And Strasburg still eventually found a way uh, to have to get Tommy John, especially with his World Series heroics. So... Fingers crossed, everything holds up physically for Kopech, but man, he looks good so far. And uh, before we preview the upcoming series against Detroit, the Golden Cog, the player of the week, we select the nominees, you guys select the winner via Twitter on at Sox Machine, or you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. And Jim, the fans picked Nick Magical. He had 50.7% of the vote. And uh, again, he had a great weekend. I'm I'm not mm-hmm. surprised. I mean, it was strong. He had strong candidates this week, which is also a very nice thing. Um, but the fans are on the Nick Magical train. Yeah, it, it you know there was a strong argument for Yohan Mankata, and I think you know if you looked at it, you know in terms of total production, uh, you know Mankata might have the edge. But it did feel like Magical's week in terms of just like his a little bit of him establishing what he can do now. And I think you know, there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of a narrative, or or just um, you know, uh, just I guess the packaging of the story. Mankato, we know what he looks like when he's fully functioning, and he's not quite there yet. Yeah, he hasn't quite, hard, yeah, I guess, summoned like all of his skills. Whereas Madrigal, I think, is showing just exactly what his like fully fleshed game looks like. And I think that's why you know he's a fine pick for this week. Again, you can vote for upcoming Golden Kong Player of the Weeks by following us on Twitter at Sox Machine and follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh as we post the polls after the Sunday game or if the White Sox are playing Sunday night prior to the Sunday game uh, for that week's performance. And this week, it is Nick Magical. So congrats, Nick. And we're going to take a quick break on the Sox Machine podcast. But coming up next, we preview the upcoming series as the Detroit Tigers visit. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff. And it affects everything. 
which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. The next opponent for the Chicago White Sox are the Detroit Tigers, and they are not having fun lately. They have lost their last four straight games, their last place in the American League Central, with a 7-15 record, and in their last 10 games, they are 1-9. So it's not been a fun stretch for the Detroit Tigers. Players to watch offensively. This is not a good offensive ball club. There is a nice story with Akil Badu, their Rule 5 draftee. He's hitting 263 with an on-base percentage of 283, but he's slugging 660 as he's hit four home runs. Wilson Ramos has six home runs on the season. Uh, his slash line is very Wilson Ramos like, hitting 222 with a 263 on base percentage and slugging 514. Everybody else offensively, not good for Detroit. Uh, and even though those slash lines are not impressive. So offensively, Detroit shouldn't be a big threat to the White Sox this upcoming series. What is interesting is the possible probable pitchers for this series. Matthew Boyd. You remember when Matthew Boyd was really good for Detroit? We talked about how the Tigers should trade him. Well, it seems mm-hmm. that version of Boyd is coming back. In his five starts this year, he's got a 1.82 ERA. Remember when we talked about how good Michael Fulmer was and maybe Detroit should trade Michael Fulmer? Well, that version of Michael Fulmer might be coming back too. In his three games started, he's got a 3.32 ERA and their number one pick overall, Casey Mize, uh, still trying to find his way, find rhythm in the major leagues. In four games started, he's got a 5.23 ERA. And your probable pitchers for this series, again, the White Sox have Monday, April 26th off. For Tuesday night's matchup, it is to be determined for the Detroit Tigers, but Lucas Giolito is going to look forward to bouncing back from his bad start against the Boston Red Sox. This is going to be an 80-plus degree day in the south side of Chicago on Tuesday, so fingers crossed the White Sox offense continues to hit after the Texas series as it's a prime opportunity to hit some home runs. Hopefully Giolito is not giving up those home runs. Wednesday night, 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Casey Mize, as I just mentioned. He'll be going up against Carlos Rodon. Note, there's a 50% chance of scattered thunderstorms during the afternoon. We'll see if that impacts as far as the start on Wednesday night. On Thursday night, this is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Matthew Boyd, and right now the projected starter for the White Sox is Dylan Cease. But this could be Lance Lynn unless Russo wants to hold back Lynn an extra day and make the start in Game 1 against the Cleveland Indians this upcoming weekend. We'll see what Russo wants to do, but if it's not Lynn, it could be Dylan Cease. There is a 40% chance of rain, but that is for the afternoon. It should be dry in the evening. All right, Jim, as I mentioned, Detroit, not an offensive threat. The White Sox pitching, especially the bullpen, uh, should be able to hold leads if they get them. Mm -hmm. But I am interested on this Thursday night game against Matthew Boyd 
because the White Sox feast off lefties. And if Boyd is back to his old form, I think this is a good test for Matthew Boyd and a good test for the White Sox offense because he has been throwing the ball really well. And if he's back to his new form or his most recent form, the White Sox will lead off with consecutive homers because they did that to him <laughs> twice. Uh, yeah, they're, the Tigers seem like a little bit of a mess right now. I mean, they're pitching, they have talent, but... You know, uh, Scooble struggled. Mize has struggled a little bit. Um, you know, they've, they've done some, you know, they tried to do some piggybacking a little bit and, and getting guys on different schedules. Uh, I thought this was going to be, you know, uh, I, I thought the Tigers had enough talent maybe early on that they might be, you know, hover around 500 for a little bit before falling off. And you could hear more of the AJ Hinch versus Tony LaRusa storyline. But I think it's going to be more or less on the back burner right now. I think it's going to be more about just like the White Sox taking care of business the way the Royals took care of business against the Tigers. And I think, you know, we talked about with uh, the schedule and just the the way the 60-game schedule broke down last year and with the White Sox dominating the Royals and Tigers. I think the Royals, at least initially, are kind of borrowing from that playbook and just beating up on the Tigers to pad their standings a little bit and, and uh uh, make themselves more of a threat by beating the teams they should beat. And so the White Sox kind of have to follow suit a little bit. And the Tigers are pretty much scrambling right now for for a half a lineup and getting pitchers on schedule. So, you know, with an off day and with pitchers being able to lick their wounds a little bit, so I think the White Sox should be ready. Yeah, I think for the keys for me in this series is obviously the offense continued to hit as well as they did against the Texas Rangers. Pitching-wise, especially on Tuesday and Wednesday, I don't think... Uh, even though Casey Mize is a righty, uh, I don't think the White Sox hitters should struggle. Uh, and again, with Matthew Boyd being a lefty, if that narrative continues for the White Sox, maybe they are the ones to find a way to hit against Matthew Boyd. They were able to find a way to smack around Dane Dunning on Friday uh, and also on Sunday. So hopefully those type of performances help for the White Sox. But for the bullpen, Jim, the bullpen needs a good series Mm -hmm. just for a confidence boost because, you know, Liam Hendricks, (laughs) poor guy, he's given up five hits this year. Four of them are home runs. Okay, so if he's giving up a hit right now, it seems like that hit is leaving the yard. And there's just I just don't have a lot of confidence in this bullpen in their ability to hold a one run lead. It's like if the white Sox are ahead by one after the sixth inning, I just wonder to myself, okay, how is the bullpen going to blow this? And I think they could really use a good series and facing an inferior team like Detroit. Hopefully it is that confidence springboard for them. Yeah. I think I'm looking at Lucas Giolito, just, you know, given how much of a disaster his start against Boston was and given the uh, weird finger slicing he has, that seems like something that could, um, maybe take a while to resolve, or at least more than the start. So ideally he comes back, he throws six plus great innings and puts that Boston start behind him. And we can just treat it as like a strange morning start aberration and, uh, and, and, and shrug it off. Cause I think if he goes six plus, then, you know, that should set up the bullpen to handle innings. It should feel comfortable handling and put it more on that, uh, yeah, on, on good footing. I think, uh, should Giolito struggle again? Should it turn to a slugfest? Should guys have to go two innings or should like LaRusa have to piece together, you know, from the fourth inning on? Then I think, you know, that that leaves it. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Uh, leaves an opening for those bullpen struggles to continue. Like, uh, you know, when, when, when thinking about the bullpen, and well, I guess we can talk about this later in P.O. Sox because we've got a lot of questions about it. But uh, just when it comes to the bullpen, like I don't see anything wrong with the way LaRusse is handling it by and large. Like I don't disagree with any of the moves, any of uh, you know, the guys he's going to. Just right now, just the lefties are giving up hits to the lefties and uh, uh, righties are you know, getting the ball up in the zone and paying the price. So it's hard to say. Yeah, I can't disagree with the calls that he's making. I just feel bad for him because it seems like every call he makes is not working out. Um, which is the peril of being a manager with a shaky bullpen right now. And this is honestly not that much different than what Rick Renteria dealt with last season. Renteria's bullpen situation was different because guys were hurt. Uh, this situation is that the guys are underperforming. So hopefully they have a good series against Detroit. They really could use a confident springboard and facing an offense that's this bad against you know, like the Tigers have. Uh, hopefully does a trick for the White Sox bullpen. Jim and I are going to have a late night on Thursday as we'll recap as far as the White Sox Tigers series on Sox Machine Live, live on our YouTube page after the Thursday night game because the White Sox turn around real quick as Cleveland arrives for the weekend series starting on Friday. Uh, I wish it was a afternoon tilt, but it is not. So it will be a late night for Jim and I, and you can watch that again on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash machine or on SoxMachine.com. As Jim mentioned, you guys had a lot of questions for us. So let's answer them next in P.O. Sox. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where... All of our questions this week were submitted from our Patreon supporters because you guys just overfilled the mailbox. And uh, you could be a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash machine. And Jim, let's dive in because we got a lot of questions to answer here. The first question comes from Chef Eric. And Chef Eric is asking, Jim, White Sox are in contention mode. And I know Major League Baseball doesn't allow draft trades. 
But should the White Sox trade, uh, sorry, should the White Sox draft for trade capital or to build their own farm system? I know it can be both, but is it allowed to have a handshake agreement to draft for other teams? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is not. And uh, the Trey Turner rule kind of exists for that reason. You know, the uh, when when the uh, when draft picks could be players to be named later in trades and you kind of know who is going to a team, the team that you know held on that player for the time being, in that case, it was Trey Turner. Uh, who was in San Diego at the time, um, you know, the, the Padres basically were in charge of his player development while he was definitely going to the Nationals. And that was an awkward situation. And, uh, you know, Major League Baseball realized it was untenable. So they moved up uh, how quickly players could be traded from a year after drafting to just after the season was over. Um, and, and that was for the reason. Just, you know, it was weird to have somebody you know is going to be dealt for from a team to a team still in charge of how that player is being played, how that player is being used um, and, and what level he's playing at and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot that's uh, fraught with that setup. And also, you know, just Major League Baseball generally frowns upon and kind of knows when teams are trying to circumvent rules. You see it more in the international markets, but when they when when the league detects or, or can determine that uh, teams are cutting corners or going around the rule book, they tend to, you know, put the hammer down. So... I think that's going to be, uh, yeah, that's going to be a way to get around it. So I think when it comes to draft capital, um, you know, ideally, like you said, it's both. But I think that far down in the draft, when you're drafting like in the back half, I think you know the White Sox can, um, you know, draft a prep player like we saw Jared Kelly. Like his his price tag was too high for teams that were drafting in the first round, so the White Sox basically gave him like a back half of the. Uh, first round price tag in the second round. So players like him are available. And what I'm curious about is, you know, we saw this last winter that young players like, you know, teen talent, um, high school picks, uh, international talent was really the uh, the most sought after type of prospect in trades. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if that's like a temporary condition because of this uncertainty with the CBA and when players can become free agents and if there's any kind of change in how, um, you know, older prospects or prospects with, uh, you know, who are on the 40 man roster or what have you are considered, you know, maybe teams saw that uncertainty as a reason to get players who are very far away from the majors because at least they have some time built in to adjust their promotions and planning in case they do accelerate the timetable for pre-R players a little bit. But I think after the CBA, I think we'll have a much better idea of like how players are handled and what the timetable is for traditionally drafted collegiate players. And so, you know, that might not be as big of a concern. So I think for the time being, uh, probably the White Sox are in a position where they can draft a prep player to, you know, uh, I guess get away from drafting collegiate players in the first round if they think there's a like a Jared Kelly type who has more of an upside than a college player that low in the draft but uh, I think it's going to be best player available as boring as the answer is and ideally you know should the player work out I, I think uh, uh, it'll be you know trade capital either way I think they just want to avoid the situation where it's like Zach Birdie like rushing a reliever up the chain or uh, you know trying to find a, a polished college bat to fill a spot I think that's hopefully they're past that and for our Patreon supporters, for this upcoming MLB Draft Watch, I will be having the draft database uh, because a lot of top sites have updated as far as their 
top rankings of players in this upcoming draft class. I have thoughts regarding as far as some of these rankings, uh, and I'll write about that, but we'll also have the MLB draft database. So if you support us on Patreon, you'll be able to find that. It's a very useful guide. It's something that I use often when taking a look at where prospects and what the majority of the industry feels like a, a particular player could fall within the draft. Uh, so definitely look out for that for our Patreon supporters. That will be on SoxMachine.com later this week. And right now for the White Sox at pick 22, Chef Eric, it could be a prep player, Jim, because the college hitters really are falling off the board because of poor performance and because the prep players, especially the top prep players, they continue to have their showcases last summer during the pandemic, even though it was a risky move. It did allow teams to scout those players and they have more scout as far as reports and tape on these prep players. I wouldn't be surprised if the White Sox did go prep with pick number 22, because if they are true to their word and that they take the best player available... At this moment, it's probably going to be a high schooler for the White Sox at pick 22. And what they do with that high cool. schooler at pick 22, Chef Eric, to be determined. Because you're right. It could be used to help build the next wave of White Sox prospects, especially taking these prep pitchers the last couple of years. Or this player is going to help in a blockbuster trade for the White Sox to patch up as far as their contending roster in 2022. But Chef Eric, thank you so much for your question. One thing that I do want to touch on, and I don't know if it's going to be included in the CBA, but this is some of the off the record conversations that I have, especially with Jim Callis. I can see draft picks being included in trades in upcoming years, Jim. Not necessarily trading picks on draft day to move up in the draft like we see in the NFL, mm -hmm. but in July when we see these midseason trades, I could see t all 30 teams be open to the idea that instead of giving me this 18 or 19-year-old in the Dominican Summer League roster, give me your first round or second round slot in next year's draft. I could see that coming to Major League Baseball, and I think it'd be much welcome. Yeah, I wonder if they would have protections then, like we see in the NBA, where you know it's a second round pick, or it's like a first round pick, unless you know we're in the top ten, then second round pick or something like that. Yeah, why? And I say why not? You can borrow, you know, language and verbiage from the other leagues. That's also I like that idea. That's a good idea. So we'll see what happens, but I, I could see that uh, in the next CBA where teams are allowed to trade because then if you like your 19-year-old and if you already spent all this time developing this teenager and you're not so sure about next year's draft class, but a team that you're calling is, okay, well, instead of me trading this 19-year-old that I like, just take my second round pick next year yeah, and add more money to your draft pool. See, I think everybody wins in that type of scenario. Yeah, I think with with uh, you know draft pool. Yeah, I think last time it was brought up, or the 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 thinking around it was kind of uh, they they kind of solidified back when there was no draft cap. Um, you know, they didn't have hard slot values and they didn't have hard budgets to where like teams like the Yankees could just accumulate draft picks and pay them all a ton. But with that being 
uh, out of the way. There isn't that kind of competitive disadvantage, and it seems like teams should be able to free, be free to do what they want. Exactly. So, well, Chef Eric, thank you so much for submitting your question. Our next question comes from Alistair Smith. And Alistair Smith is asking, Jim, Greg Nix, and James Fegan had a short conversation about this on Twitter. And I would like to hear a fuller discussion about the coming off the bag for an amount of time that only be perceived via replay rule. Yeah, that was the Tim Anderson slide when he apparently came off the bag just uh, long enough for the tag to be applied after he slid through. He's safe on the initial slide, but came off the bag and only like slowing it down frame by frame replay could you see that the tag was applied. And uh, yeah, I know that's a sore sticking point for fans and it's annoying you know, to see like a player hover over a bag, lose contact briefly while the glove's on him and he's called out when he never would have been called out in the first 110 years of uh, modern day baseball. Uh, but I just think, you know, with, you know, the, the thing I brought up was with gambling being kind of so heavily featured now in major league baseball game productions and all the uh, partnerships with casinos. I just don't see how you could ever like leave that into an interpretation ever again, like the neighborhood player, or the, the slide losing contact with the bag, just, um, you know, just being able to, for an umpire to say like, well, you know, he was technically out, but the spirit of the game says he should be safe while like, you know, the, uh, so many bets hang in the balance. You know, I think that's just probably like an integrity. Yeah. It just opens the door for a whole lot of integrity issues that are really a pain in the butt. And, you know, if you don't care about gambling, like, like I don't care about it. Like I've never placed a bet in baseball and don't really care to just like, I'd be fine if that, uh, if, if casinos were kind of severed from the conversation, but that's probably not going to happen to me because it's way too lucrative. So, I think you can't allow room for that kind of interpretation to come back into the game. So you have to think about it in other ways. And uh, a number of people suggested, like, why not have a rule where something similar to how it is at first base, like you can go through the bag. If you slide like through the bag and make no effort to go to third, you're safe. Or if you like sliding is like you give yourself up until you like stand up again <laughs> and, and kind of stuff like that. And I was thinking about it and just thinking like, it kind of makes sense, except the, the difference with first base is that like when you run through the bag, you're in foul territory, um, you know, and you can peel off into foul territory. Whereas you're, if you're like slide through second or run through second, because if, if you don't, uh, if you don't have to stay in the bag with the slide, can you just run through it? Like you just have like a guy like kind of just milling around the middle of the field <laughs> and is like neither, uh, he's just kind of like in a a state in between where he's not a live runner, but he's also very much still involved in the play and in the game. And that's probably something that just feels like a little bit too gray area to me where it seems like you can just either solve the problem by players refining their technique, the way you're seeing it at home plates with the way the slide rule and the collision rule, um, you know, force catchers and base runners like to change their plans and like the middle infield, how that took away the neighborhood play and, and players have to stay on the bag now. Um, you know, that's something where they, they had to refine their technique. So I can see like sliders having to do the same, probably mixed in with maybe the making of the bases a little bit bigger or a little bit easier to hold too. So you don't like punish players for being too athletic and being too fast with their slides. Cause seeing like really cool long distance hook slide is really one of the cooler things you can see as a baseball fan. And really one of the more, like when you see like a great play at the plate where you see like a player, like basically doing like the last 10 feet slide alone, like that's, that's exciting photogenic stuff. And I don't think you want to take that out of the game. 
And I think there's probably something you can do with like either the size of the bag or how it's designed to make it a bit easier to reward players who are like basically being punished right now for being too fast. Yeah, it's just, again, they're testing out new bases, I think, in the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if larger bases is the answer or bases made out of different material. Because you can't grab these bases, right? They, When baseball was around in like early as far as in, in the 20th century, they were literally bags. <laughs> so you can at least mm-hmm. grab onto them, right? There's nothing to grab on. When Tim Anderson is sliding you know, head first, your hand is literally sliding off the base in that situation. And you're just hoping that some part of your body is still on that base while the defender has their tag applied on you all the way through the sliding motion. And we'll see if it makes a difference in the minor leagues. If it does, I could see that being one of the new changes Major League Baseball is doing to the minors coming into the majors is having bigger bases or bases made out of a different material as long as it doesn't hurt anyone while they're running the bases because that would be terrible. But it's I know it's ticky-tacky, but if the replay office in New York has a still frame where the base runner is clearly off the base and the defender clearly has a tag applied to them, technically they're out. And I'm just living with it now because at times it sucks when Tim Anderson's called out, but there's going to be times that Tim Anderson's the one applying the tag. So I'm just taking it as just part of the game right now. And at times it's going to suck. At other times it's going to benefit the White Sox. But Alistair, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Kyle Nelson. No relation. And Kyle is asking, Jim, I'm very concerned about Yasmani Grandal being cooked. His framing numbers are down. His defense seems really off and his hitting is bad. Is there something in the underlying numbers that say he's not playing as bad as it looks? Should Zach Collins start taking a larger share of the starts? I think really the only thing that's wrong with his numbers is the ground ball rate. He's hitting too many balls on the ground. Uh, When he hits the balls on the ground, they go into the shift. And so he's not rewarded for that. The contact numbers are strong. Um, The, the hard hit ball, uh, hard hit rate is, is strong. His plate discipline is still there. Like all the, you know, all the things you're seeing about, you know, ground all swinging at pitches. He should be swinging in that are there. So I really don't see anything besides the ground ball rate. Now that's not necessarily like, uh, a sign that he'll be fine just because we know there's a physical issue with the knee. And I, I think that's really going to be the, you know, I guess that's good news and bad news. The good news is like, it doesn't seem like he's cooked or like it's age related or he's done. And that like the bat is slowing down or anything like that. It's just more one body part. The question is like, I say, is that body part, is that something that he's going to have to manage all season? Is it like a temporary thing that he's working himself back into shape from after, you know, having a slow spring training Um, is it something that's going to be like, you need time off or is it something that's going to have to be just like balanced over the course of the season? So that's, I think the, just the big issue. And I think it's simple, but not simple. And I think that's why you're seeing like an attempt to, um, you know, bring Zach Collins into the fold, both, you know, working with pitchers, all sorts of pitchers, and, uh, also, you know, getting at bats as well and having a chance to work through his early season struggles, because I think they're going to need somebody to take the load off him. And Collins is right now the best player suited to do that. And uh, it, it's a little bit uneasy. And like that, that bunt that he had in the ninth inning, um, 
Yeah, I wonder if that was LaRusso's call or not, just because uh, I could see Grandal being up for it just because if he's hitting the ball on the ground, he's pretty much a sure double play in that situation. So he felt like he was better off giving a bunt just to have two guys behind him uh, have a shot at getting the run home, and Madrigal did. But right now I think Grandal's just a little bit off. The knee is hurting him. The sprint speed, which is never good, is down even further. So he's just not quite right physically, and just here's hoping it only takes him like weeks rather than months to get through it. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Steve Bennett. And Steve is asking, in what order will these guys finish in the Rookie of the Year voting? Yerman Mercedes, Nick Magical, Andrew Vaughn, and Michael Kopech. And Steve added, I can see all four getting votes. Yeah, this is a, this is a tough question. And I, the order I have right now is Madrigal, Mercedes, Vaughn, Kopech. Um and, and with Magical, I see him getting the edge just because I don't see any way his playing time is jeopardized. Like, I think when Eloy Jimenez comes back, you know, should he come back on schedule and looking like, if not like all the way back, like pretty much nearly fully formed, that's going to take playing time away from Mercedes. It's going to take playing time away from Vaughn if Vaughn's still in the mix. And, and Vaughn has looked better. Um, and with Adam Angle, you know, having a setback with his rehab, I really don't see any reason for Vaughn not to play and to try to like either reinforce the idea that he can hang in the majors or um, you know, provide evidence that better pitchers are going to figure him out with more looks and they shouldn't plan around him. But either way, it'd be nice to know. And, and so uh, I think Vaughn you know, has a chance of staying in Chicago the full season and getting playing time, but I can also see ways it's taken away from him. And then with Kopech, I think it's just going to be more of a matter of like managing his innings and uh, trying not to wear him down. And, and I can see him being capped at like 130, 140 innings this year if he like starts all the way through. And that's typically not quite enough to win unless he, his numbers are really phenomenal. So I think for the time being, if Madrigal's hitting like over 300 and contributing uh, to a lineup the way he contributed this weekend or doing more of that at least, I think he's going to be, you know, he's going to have the defense or at least having a position that's going to bolster his wins above replacement, his advanced metrics. And you're going to have the novelty too, like the national story of him being like a throwback uh, and a guy who doesn't strike out and a guy perfectly built for uh, this, this day and age, like providing a very unique skill that's in demand. And so I can see him having enough appeal to win rookie of the year votes that way as well. So I think there are more avenues for him to get votes and that's why I have him at the top of the list. And I think Mercedes is next just because I can see his playing time being more steady. So if Michael Kopech only pitched 130 innings, you're thinking that that's not enough to be rookie of the year? Uh, no, I think I can see him battling some like in-season fatigue and such. So Okay. Like I can see him just like, you know, not not being like all the way back yet to have the kind of complete season to where it would beat a guy like Magical who's hitting over 300 and playing decent defense at second base. Okay, got it. Okay, because I was trying to remember, didn't John Means just recently for Baltimore, I swear he finished second in Rookie of the Year. Yeah, yeah in 2019 he did. Yeah, because uh, Jordan Alvarez for Houston won Rookie of the Year. Yeah, 100, okay, so 155. Like, yeah, maybe, I thought I thought Means pitched more than that. He did pitch 31 games, but 155 innings. So maybe I'm thinking more in terms of games, like starts and games than actual um, innings, but yeah, 130 might be enough to move ahead of Vaughn. So maybe I'll revise that now that you mentioned that and say, I'll go, um, magical Mercedes Kopech Vaughn. 
See, I when I wrote down my list, I had Mercedes Kopech Magical Vaughn. That's that's who I went with because if Mercedes continues to hit like this, uh, the advanced metrics are going to like Yuma Mercedes more than Nick Magical because of the power. I mean, Yuma Mercedes is already at one point one WAR according to Fangraphs, and it's going to take a little bit more for Nick Magical to really build up that WAR total. And again, we're talking about human beings voting. Uh, and you know, Nick, you remember Mercedes has got a great story and his ride to the major leagues. And again, it, it will require Mercedes to continue to hit like this, but Jordana Alvarez won in 2019, mainly as a DH. So it wouldn't be the first time, especially the American league if a primary DH won rookie of the year. And then with Kopech, I mean, I, maybe it's just my confidence in Michael Kopech at this moment. But if he does make this turn, if the White Sox are confident that he can start every fifth or sixth day and go four to five innings and continues to pitch like he has, man, that's that's really going to catch a lot of eyeballs. And again, I, I think the human voters would be more impressed with what Michael Kopech is doing than Nick Madrigal. But I'd still I like all three of their chances of winning rookie of the year. But with Andrew Vaughn, he's really going to have to pick up his game in order to get into this Rookie of the Year uh, race, Jim. I think he's a distant fourth uh, listing these four players. And things can change. I think that, you know, there's still a possibility Andrew Vaughn could be in Charlotte on May 4th when that season starts uh, to allow Adam Engel to join the team. Uh, we'll see. I was I was yeah. kind of surprised Adam Engel hasn't joined the White Sox yet. Um but that, that's, I think right now for those four players, I think it's, you're, you're, the White Sox have better chances of winning this award right now with Yerma Mercedes, Michael Kopech, and Nick Madrigal than Andrew Vaughn. Yeah, I think with Mercedes, I can just see him having like a slow regression down to like, you know, where he's hitting in the high 200s and slugging like below 500. Like not, you know, being a good DH, but not a great one. Just because I think he's got that two strike swing and he just might have to deploy that more often as pitchers get more used to him and more used to pitching around him where he won't be able to tap into the power the way he has early on. And so that's why I don't quite see him. I see Madrigal passing him. Uh, Vaughn, you know, I can, you know, when, when just thinking about this in terms of ways they can get votes and uh, ways that they can get to good outcomes. I think Vaughn is like, right now, I can see him finishing fourth. The reason I had him third initially is thinking like, if he clicks, I think he'll click. Hmm. Like I can see him just doing, you know, maybe he'll have to go down to Charlotte briefly for, a tune-up or just to, you know, maybe there's better reasons to play angle or whoever at the major league level, but I can see him like coming back with a fury. So if he doesn't figure out in the first half, I can see him having a hell of a second half. Yeah. But he would need to get the playing time. That's why I just think with Eloy there, um, you know, should he come back like in July, August, I think that's, that might close off some ways for him to get playing time and, and that w would make it tougher. But Vaughn, I think has at least the ability to click and that's why I had him third initially, but Kopech, I think, yeah, if he's, Throwing great relief innings, and then he throws on like valuable starts on top of that. That's probably good enough for third and maybe even second. Yeah, but you know what? Again, this is a great conversation to have, and uh, hopefully all four continue to perform for the White Sox because they need them. And Steve, thank you so much for your question, and thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us this week in P.O. Sox. If you want to submit a question to us or topic that you'd like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, because we have so many Patreon supporters, we're well over 500 Patreon supporters now, which thank you guys so much. 
really the best way is by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash socks machine. Jim and I will continue to engage with you guys and answer questions uh, on Twitter, which you can follow us at socks machine and you can follow me at socks machine underscore Josh. But if you want more in-depth analysis and more back and forth, again, the best way to do it is by becoming a Patreon supporter, which we have multiple tiers starting at $2, $3, $5, and $10 a month, in which our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They get an ad-free version of the podcast. They also get an ad-free version of SoxMachine.com with the website. And they also get first crack at any of our new Socks Machine swag. So again, if you enjoy our work and you want to help support us and you want more from us, go to Patreon.com slash socks machine and sign up today and that will do it for this socks machine podcast thank you guys so much for listening you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and the socks machine podcast is a production of socksmachine.com your home for all things chicago white Sox baseball alongside jim margulis i'm josh nelson thanks for listening Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com